Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. This video is sponsored by CuriosityStream. Get access to my streaming video service, Nebula, when you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the description. We already know from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that the answer to life is 42, and while that's useful to know, it doesn't tell us why life exists in the first place. Welcome to our 222nd weekly episode of Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, where we tackle the big questions. And this episode's question is so big, it hasn't merely vexed the greatest minds of history, it also won the most recent poll of what topics SFIA subscribers would like to hear discussed in an episode. But a question that's vexed humankind for millennia might be a little tricky to fully answer in a single episode, even a long one, so first let's ponder what angle we want to examine that question from. Why is something of an ambiguous word, and when we ponder why something is, we first have to ask if we are expecting to have a cause or a purpose. Imagine if you were watching an intense game of chess and a fellow spectator next to you asked, hey, why did Black move his rook like that? This is a perfect example of where you probably wouldn't give a causal answer, in terms of what was going on before the move that caused it, but a teleological answer, one in terms of what purpose the move was meant to accomplish, further along in the game. Technically, you could also answer in terms of how Black's mindset just before making the move caused the move, but that would still be a discussion of possible futures Black anticipates, not about passport states causing the move. As students of science, we think in terms of cause and effect, even though some things in theoretical physics might violate causality as we currently understand it. But in practical language we very often talk about phenomena in these teleological terms, in which things seem to be pulled by the future rather than pushed by the past. This is most true when we're pondering why a man-made device or component was engineered in a certain way, it's built like this in order to accomplish that. Really, any time we're discussing rational decisions of minimally cognitive beings, a teleological explanation will tell the story the most clearly. But we have to be careful when we start discussing non-conscious or non-rational actors in the same way, lest we create some misunderstandings, and unfortunately this language permeates discussions of the evolution of life. We hear phrases like, the birds evolved longer beaks to get at nectar and larger flowers. I expect most fans of this channel know that's just a shorthand figure of speech, and a more precise description would be, the length of the bird's beak varied by minor mutations, and in places where large nectar flowers were more abundant than plants that produced seeds with husks, long beaks conferred a greater survival advantage than short chisel beaks, enabling long-beaked birds in those regions to reproduce more, leading to a greater average, I think you get the idea, that we'd go mad if we had to talk that way all the time, so we abbreviate a bit, though that can sometimes cause misunderstanding. While the teleological explanation, in which a creature evolves a feature to accomplish a purpose, is convenient and non-maddening, it can be very misleading. As we explained in more detail in our Void Ecology episode, evolution does not engage in a generations-long process of developing an expensive new feature that will confer a survival advantage someday in the future, when it's finished, even if that advantage will eventually be huge. Every step along the way needs to confer an advantage, 
or at least be sufficiently neutral that it causes no survival problems. Something like fur patterns or hair color might be fairly neutral initially, or even cause a very minor disadvantage, but eventually produces something like camouflage patterns or a color or style more appealing to potential mates. It's all a big statistical survival game where other factors including luck are in play. But the key idea is that in Darwinian evolution, each incremental change must enhance the generation's survival or at least not diminish it, but it can't be explained by its being part of some longer term goal or purpose. So back to our sub-question, when we ask why life exists, are we looking for a cause or a purpose? Well it seems to me that a thing only has a purpose if there was a designer, engineer, or strategist behind the thing, who had some goal in mind. Design and purpose to life is certainly a possibility, and plenty of designers and purposes have been suggested over the years. The intelligent design school of thought these days includes not just religious creationists, but also alien origin theorists and simulated universe theorists. If you adhere to any of those theories, then asking the purpose of life is really just asking what was on the Creator's mind and what they were out to accomplish. But while life on Earth indeed might have been made by aliens who evolved billions of years earlier, they still have to have originated themselves, so why do they exist? The same question would apply to a single Creator. So that declaring our Universe to be a simulation still requires figuring out who made the Universe running our simulated Universe. This is a common problem with origin of life theories, many just kick the time of origin and why further back. Of course that doesn't mean they're wrong either, and we can speculate in an at least logically bounded way why a creator or simulator might make a universe, what purpose he, she, they, it had in mind, where they are now, and why they exist. But such things don't really fit well into scientific inquiry, so we'll shelve them and discussion of the purpose of life for today. So that leaves us to ponder the cause of life, to examine how and why unconscious physical laws governing primordial particles without an engineer in sight or any goal in mind could turn those particles into amazingly complex living things. It can be counterintuitive at first that simple laws governing a simple system can give rise to extremely complex behaviors. We call such systems emergent, as they emerge from a lower set of rules or principles. Emergent systems have properties as a collection that the individual components do not have, and we usually use the term to imply that the emergence was unexpected, at least by us, and it's quite a common phenomenon that simple systems produce more complex systems with governing rules that you can discover and base predictions on, even without understanding the simpler systems or simpler rules underlying them. For example, consider two elements of Newtonian mechanics, force equals mass times acceleration, and gravitational force between two bodies being inversely proportional to their squared distance. From just those rules, Kepler's laws of planetary motion are logically, mathematically inevitable. But remember, Kepler died before Newton was born. He gathered those laws of planetary motion strictly from observation, without ever knowing that gravity is an inverse square force. In other words, he figured out the higher level laws of planetary motion and made accurate predictions with them without ever knowing the simpler rules from which his three laws emerged. And likewise, humanity discovered a great many laws of chemistry and used them for centuries, only learning about a century ago that those rules all emerged from simpler rules governing how the components of atoms behave. The specific ways that nucleons and electrons attract, repel, and bond give rise directly to everything in chemistry 
from elements to stable valence shells to atomic bonds to the unwinding of double helixes. We have a few mathematical games that beautifully illustrate emergent behaviors and help make the concept far more intuitive, Conway's Game of Life and Langton's Ant being perhaps the two best known. I've included links to both in the description, because you'll probably want to go play with them. In the Game of Life, created by mathematician John H. Conway, the world consists of a flat grid of squares, each square is either black or white and interacts with its eight neighbors, the squares are periodically updating according to a simple rule, turn black if you have three black neighbors, remain your current color if you have two black neighbors, turn white otherwise. And that's it, the complete and unabridged fundamental laws of physics for a simple universe at the equivalent of a Planck scale in one rule. And yet as the game allows you to observe, the simple rule can give rise to structures that stand, spin, dance, travel, leave trails, send out streams of other travelers, even merge with other structures and reproduce. And many of these structures are so simple, they often form accidentally in a world seated with some random black squares. Even more complex structure can form on larger grids, and it's quite exciting to see what's going to form when traveling structures collide with one another. As surprising as the behaviors are, you can see with a certainty that all the complexity you're observing emerges inarguably from that very simple grid update rule. If you're having difficulty imagining how incredibly complex molecular processes like protein folding and DNA transcription could come about just from electrons and nucleons pushing and pulling at each other, play the game of life for a while and ponder emergent behaviors. Langton's Ant is another math game that somewhat illustrates emergent behaviors, but also illustrates another phenomenon we'll need to grasp to discuss why life exists. In this game, an ant wanders around another two-dimensional black and white grid. Each time interval it steps forward one square. If the new square is white, it turns the square black and turns right. If the new square is black, it turns the square white and turns left, and then it repeats. Again, very very simple, and again, complex behavior emerges. If you start the ant on a black grid, for the first few hundred moves it will create simple geometric patterns that are almost symmetric. But then things turn chaotic, and the ant follows a pseudo-random path. But then after about 10,000 moves, we see the emergence of what is called a highway, as the ant begins creating a recurrent pattern of 104 steps that repeats indefinitely and carries the ant farther and farther away from the complex structure it spent 10,000 moves forming. It turns out that no matter how you initiate the grid with black and white squares, the ant will eventually form this highway. This is what we call an attractor state in chaos theory. Nature is full of such examples and life itself is assumed to be one such, though we see attractor states in everything from actual ant hive behavior to the weather. Another thing we see a lot in nature is following the path of least resistance, and of course this also applies to the weather. The path of least or minimum of resistance, everything in nature tends to flow to a low energy and stable state, often posi in low energy and fairly stable states on its way to lowest energy and most stable states. Indeed all those atoms and molecules are emergent properties of various smaller and quantum things following into stable or fairly stable states, where fairly stable might be mere trillions of a second, an eternity at the quantum scale, or trillions of years, an eternity at the human scale. Emergent properties are a big thing in connecting the fields of science together. We would say that particle physics consists of all sorts of little particles that exist as emergent properties of quantum, and that atomic physics emerges from that, 
and chemistry from that, and microbiology from that, and biology and botany and zoology and even psychology and economics and philosophy are emergent from that too, several times removed in some cases. It's weird to think that Earth's weather, and all its patterns, is essentially an emergent property of hydrogen being able to fuse into helium at certain rates under certain conditions, giving us all those bigger atoms like iron, silicon, and oxygen that form our world, and the sunlight that falls down on it to drive those weather patterns, as water evaporates, falls back down, and eventually ends back up in the ocean as a statistical result of molecules being banged around by each other and photons and presumably gravitons as well. That's a fairly important point for our topic because a hidden clause on why life exists is why does life exist in this universe? If you rearrange the basic properties of the universe just a tiny little bit, life as we know it would simply not occur, and indeed we've got pretty good reason to think only a minuscule fraction of possible universes would have a proper alignment of physical properties to permit any sort of life to exist. Though as we mentioned in Boltzmann Brains and the Anthropic Principle, The fine-tuned universe approach to saying life wouldn't exist in most possible universes assumes first that those physical properties have randomly assigned values, and second, only refers to life emerging and gaining complexity through a long sequence of random processes headed toward that most stable state or path of least resistance. We typically don't discuss evolution or life phrased in quite that way, but that's essentially what the process is especially when generalized beyond Earth-specific biochemistry. A given organism, in a given environment, generally represents a pretty stable state, and successive organisms fall toward ever more stable states in that environment, and if that environment remains static, over a long enough time you get a most stable organism. Environments don't stay stable though, they get stored up a lot, changing that point of stability, as those environments shift around approaching more stable states themselves. Stable in an ecological sense rather than a quantum or thermodynamic one, which is fine since ecology is an emergent property of those two anyway. If you wait long enough, everything will fall into its ground state, as it were. Unfortunately, we live in an entropic universe whose ground state is pretty much the opposite of life, what we call the heat death of the universe, which we'll be discussing options for postponing in some weeks. That can get a bit of raised eyebrows though as life seems a lot more complicated than random material, and our planet started off, presumably, as exactly that, a bunch of gas floating around from some nebula that coalesced. Earth is not a closed system, being driven by the Sun's light, and thus can defy entropy locally, as the Sun is rising in entropy to produce that light, but forget that for a moment. Wondering why life, more complicated than a random chemical soup it presumably formed from, can exist in an entropic universe, overlooks asking how all that molten material mixed together in a proto-Earth cooled and formed into complex things like mountains and rivers, or why those rivers tended to be shaped like big long waves water meanders down rather than straight lines. You'd think a river would be straight, and straighter the order it got, as it plowed through and eroded any rock in its way till it cut a straight path to the sea. Quite to the contrary, the order a river gets, the less straight it becomes, eventually becoming a sine wave then snapping those curves off to go straight again, then curving once more later on. It's actually a rather bizarre process that can create meander scarring and oxbow lakes, U-shaped lakes that get cut off from the river. Why that was happening is actually something Albert Einstein figured out, and it's a good example of how complexity can arise as an emergent property of a very simple seeming system, namely that where water is concerned, 
what goes up must come down. And it does this because it's the lowest energy state it can reach, or at least a lower energy state than it was in. Very literally in this case too, as objects have a higher potential energy the higher up in the air they are, and they fall down and lose that potential energy. It converts into kinetic energy on the drop, but they hit stuff falling down which leaches some of that energy away, leaving the fallen object in a lower energy state when it lands. Now, how could this apply to life? In life's case it is presumably all about energy and heat. Indeed we have a theory from Jeremy England of MIT that argues that life popped up because a group of atoms, when exposed to an external energy source, like the sun or similar, and when inside some big heat bath like an ocean or atmosphere, will gradually restructure itself to better dissipate heat. As we noted earlier, life has some rather debatable definitions, but one trait it has from a physics perspective is that it's much better at capturing energy from around itself and dissipating it as heat. Which is an interesting way of saying that life is way more entropic than inanimate material by and large, which is one of the common objections to evolution, that it seems to violate the laws of thermodynamics by adding complexity over time rather than decaying into a simpler form. It doesn't, life is hugely entropic, thus why we need to eat, but it's an interesting characterization as it's saying the complexity of life is specifically an emergent quality of heat dissipation. Now that is just a theory with some rather neat math and modeling attached, but it has an appeal as it's basing the reason for life existing, this complex and strange thing that seems to grow more complex and strange with time rather than breaking down, on that very engine of entropy itself. It's kind of amusing in a semi-related way that humans are just about as good as it gets in nature when it comes to getting rid of heat, and as we mentioned in the Fermi Paradox Great Filter series, our ability to jog around all day by having a really nice heat dissipation setup compared to other animals also lets us run that massive brain on our shoulders, which needs a lot of energy and gives off a ton of heat that needs to be dissipated. I suppose there's something poetic about life being an emergent property of heat dissipation and entropy, albeit via complex organized mechanisms, also a bit grimly amusing since life is very good at accelerating entropy and the more sophisticated it is the better it can do it and the farther it can reach out to do it. In this context, if the supposition is correct, life exists in order to expedite the heat death of the universe. Again rather grim, but since I needed to do a video on what we could do to postpone the heat death of the universe fairly soon, the first solution that came to mind was, die. In any event, if the reasoning is sound, we should expect life to pop up pretty much everywhere in the universe, and in any other universes where complexity was possible, and some equivalent to thermodynamics and entropy applied. Needless to say, this doesn't tell us anything about where all that energy came from in the first place, or any actual meaning of life, assuming it has one. Of course an alternative view of all this is that random luck is why life exists. This has been the default view on abiogenesis in a scientific context that while evolution from that most basic element of life was selection driven, the first element assembled at random. What that first element is we don't know, there are several competing theories and nothing approaching a consensus on one as a lead candidate, even ignoring that it would be rather murky to say what the dividing line was between something that self-replicated, which crystals and fire can both do, and something that was actually alive. Needless to say, trying to calculate the probability of that occurring is mostly pointless at the moment since we don't know what that is to try to model it, when and where it actually happened, or what the specific chemistry and energy influx would have been in the primordial soup it presumably occurred in. 
We know it was improbable since it doesn't occur constantly nowadays, though as a caveat it may have happened many times and those proto-life forms simply failed to gain traction in a world where one already had gained traction and grown in complexity. Regardless, it doesn't happen often enough that we've ever seen it pop up in sterile labs with the right elements and no competition, so it's improbable. It may be just improbable enough that we've not seen it, but still probable enough that virtually every chemical soup bigger than a swimming pool with energy influx for more than a few years spawns one, and so life is virtually everywhere. Or it may be so improbable that it's only ever happened here that one time and nowhere else in the Universe. Though complex life, living cells with internal method of energy conversion or metabolism, has occurred at least three times on Earth once in plants, another in animals, and again in a type of seaweed. But that original self-replicating cell, with the precursor to RNA and DNA, could be so improbable that even other universes like ours are devoid of life. This is where the mediocrity principle comes in, the general notion being that if you see something apparently improbable, but don't know the details, you have two ways to look at it. You could assume it's not actually improbable at all, but likely very probable and rather mediocre and mundane. And we call that the mediocrity principle, and it's our default approach to observing new phenomena in a scientific context, that the first example of something you see might be a really weird example of an object or phenomena, but probably is not. The other approach, the anthropic principle, is to assume that it probably is weird but that there may be a reason why you being able to see it factors into that. As an example, as random collections of matter go, a tree is a fairly improbable one, We don't really see them anywhere but on the very thin layer of Earth's biosphere, but we happen to live there and so we see them all the time. And this is not coincidental, it's not coincidental that you'd encounter other fans of Star Trek or some obscure personal favorite science fiction in the comments section of this channel or any of our forums. Neither the anthropic or mediocrity principles is right or wrong, and both routinely produce wrong results. They're just options for trying to get a basic handle on some new observation when you can't get more information, which is pretty much the case at the moment for the prevalence of life in the Universe. The mediocrity principle says we have one example and should assume that it's fairly normal. The anthropic principle says we have one example and we should ask if us encountering it is related to us as an observer. We don't know if life is incredibly common or if various alternate universes are devoid of life, or even exist. We just know that in any universes where intelligent life doesn't exist, no one is sitting around noting that is the case. So there could be a trillion trillion dead universes for everyone with life in it, and obviously only the ones with life in them have the option of asking if that's weird or not. Now this perspective gives an easy answer for why life exists, it's just random luck. Though again that's more of a why it exists as it does, and when and where it does. Where a new river exists is random luck, that rivers will exist but its basic properties are not. Although if we're taking the stance that there's an infinite or near-infinite number of realities, each with randomly assigned physical properties, then the existence of rivers would indeed be random. Additionally, extreme cases like the Boltzmann Brain are clear examples of life being utterly random, even thinking life. Now all this does incidentally is to show that life can exist randomly, it doesn't mean that it's actually the case. Short of discovering an alien outpost containing observational log of 4 billion years, we have no way of knowing if life emerged on Earth naturally, and such a discovery seems unlikely. 
Indeed, even if we encountered life on thousands of other worlds and literally watched it start in a lab and in an alien sea, we still don't know if that's what happened here for certain, from a scientific standpoint. As an example, we used to assume life probably started in tidal pools on the coast, but now we tend to think it was deep sea thermal vents as they look like the more probable candidates. Even if that's the case, it might have happened in tidal pools somewhere else, or have happened in tidal pools here, and even if we showed that it was 99% likely to have been thermal vents and only 1% likely to be tidal pools, it might still have been tidal pools. It might also have been aliens who originated long ago and visited here to engineer life, or to empty their septic tanks while restocking on raw materials. Either case merely kicks the origin of life back to earlier in the universe, and that's arguably true with non-natural or supernatural cases too. Life might exist because someone created it on a computer as a simulation, but you then have to ask where that someone came from. This isn't quite the same as the progenitor aliens though since they would have to come to exist and developed in our actual universe with its specific physical properties. A simulated universe might have very different properties, and one that made the big question really easy to answer, and it's only murky to us because our universe isn't actually natural, nor are its life forms. In such cases the reason why life exists, here anyway, is because they wanted it to, that programmer or creator, though presumably they had a reason, everything from the artist's desire to create something amazing to the scientist's desire to model an experiment. But regardless, we couldn't speak as to why they and life in their place exists because we have no way of knowing the parameters of the reality they emerged from. With the specific exception of an ancestral simulation, where the simulated universe by default closely matches the real one, see our simulation hypothesis or reality and simulation episodes for further discussion of this matter. The notion we discussed earlier that life might be an inevitable consequence of heat dissipation and entropy is certainly an attractive one because it would indicate it can pop up in a lot of places, though not necessarily everywhere. For instance, it's popular in fiction to suggest life forms might live inside stars, or even on the surface of dead neutron stars as we see in Robert L. Forward's Dragon's Egg. But the whole concept rests on the notion of chemistry arranging itself to take in energy and efficiently dissipate it, and there's no chemistry happening on the surface of a neutron star since there are no chemicals there. Same, we often see in fiction the idea of very slow and long-lived life forms, the Ascension Glacier in Alistair Reynolds' short story Glacial, which also examines the notion of emergence, or the counting trees in Terry Pratchett's Discworld, which having noticed that people would cut down trees to count their rings, began growing plaques that said how many rings they had, and promptly got cut down to provide address plaques for houses. Really long, slow lifespans don't allow for much evolution to complexity, biologically or culturally but they generally wouldn't indicate something that was, at its core, a byproduct of a system trying to optimize energy use and heat dissipation. Which we'll use as our closing point. When contemplating strange hypothetical life forms, the reason why life exists is actually a pretty important one. If it's an artificially created thing, one needs to ask what the purpose and motivation was for its creation. If it's just an initially random process, then all that matters is the odds of any specific medium and environment producing a viable life form and how big that medium and environment is in terms of size and duration. If it's driven by physical laws pushing toward minimum energy and stable states, then only one where that would produce such an entropy engine life form would we expect to see it. In the end, we just don't know yet. And sometimes I tend to feel the best answer really is 42.
Of course one popular notion for why life exists is simply to grow in numbers, and indeed evolution does seem to encourage that strategy. It doesn't really answer the why, but certainly describes how it functions well enough. For a species to exist, it needs to be able to at least keep up with its replacement levels, and if it gets technology, it will usually be able to expand not only on how many of its members survive to adulthood, but also how many it can support in total, its carrying capacity. Folks often wonder just how many people we can support on Earth, what its carrying capacity is, and we'll examine this in our new episode, Can We Have a Trillion People on Earth, which is out now for early release on Nebula. Nebula, our new subscription streaming service, was made as a way for education-focused independent creators to try out new content that might not work too well on YouTube, where algorithms might not be too kind to some topics, or demonetize certain ones entirely, or just doesn't fit our usual content. SFIA uses it principally for early releases of episodes, such as Can We Have a Trillion People on Earth, as well as Nebula exclusives like our full episode Coexistence with Aliens series. If you'd like to get free access to it, it does come as a free bonus with a subscription to Curiosity Stream, which also has thousands of amazing documentaries you can watch, on top of Nebula exclusive content from myself and many other creators like CGP Grey, Minute Physics, and Wendover. A year of Curiosity Stream is just $19.99 and it gets you access to thousands of documentaries, as well as complimentary access to Nebula for as long as you're a subscriber, and use the link in this episode's description, curiositystream.com slash IsaacArthur. Where folks might live in the future and how is a question that's fairly important in our discussions here on SFIA, and while Earth or other worlds are certainly options, One we suggest a lot is living inside giant, rotating orbital habitats such as the O'Neill Cylinder, and next week we'll be taking a look at what it would be like to live inside one in Life on Board an O'Neill Cylinder. The week after that, we'll look at another place near Earth folks might live in Moon, Crater Cities. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you enjoyed this episode, hit the like button and share it with others. And if you'd like to help support future episodes, visit our website, IsaacArthur.net, to see ways to donate or buy some awesome SFIA merchandise. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week.